even if somebody's bilingual, 72% of the consumers are going to spend more time on websites that are in their native language. And about three quarters of them are more willing to buy if they have information in their own language. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. Many of the manufacturing organizations my agency consults originally built their businesses locally or regionally. Then as they grew, they expanded domestically across the US, perhaps into Canada or Mexico too. But when you talk to a lot of them about doing international business outside of North America, Most would tell you they've dabbled in it a bit, but have never really committed. Others would tell you they see plenty of potential, but aren't really sure where to start. So today, we're going to dive into this topic, expanding into international markets. As my guest today will tell you, not only does doing business internationally create new revenue streams, but it creates stability. When one market is down, another may be up. And the best part, thanks to a wealth of resources, technology, and smart consultants available today. Picking an international market and getting started is probably not quite as difficult as you might guess. My guest today will tell you why. She'll also offer a variety of practical advice about how to jump in. Let me introduce her. Wendy Pease is the owner of Rapport International, a language services company that provides high-quality written translation and spoken interpretation in over 200 languages. She's the author of the book, The Language of Global Marketing, and the podcast host of The Global Marketing Show. Wendy has lived in Mexico, Taiwan, and the Philippines, has a BA from Penn State, and an MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth College. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Joe. Yeah. And always good to talk to another a fellow podcaster. So... I love that you've got a show. You're so you're so niched down, and you, you're you know a deep expert in something. And this is a topic, frankly, international marketing that I am not. I would be lying if I said I was an expert in it. I, you know, most of my clients are. You know, plenty of them do some international business, but most of them are more focused domestically, and their marketing efforts are almost entirely focused domestically. So I'm excited to learn something myself from this conversation. Yes, and you you do industrial marketing and work with a lot of manufacturers, and they are such a prime industry to go international. And uh, I think we talked about it before that the companies that do go international are on average 20% more profitable. They've got higher revenues, they pay higher salaries, and they're more stable. I just spoke with somebody who is involved with international trade and works for the government. And he says that they see it when one economy is down, the companies that are global are still growing. The statistics were crazy. I think he said on average during the last recession, companies dropped 7% on revenue, but the global companies grew by 20%. 
I was blown. It was 20% or 30%. It was something phenomenally shocking. So if you're listening and if you haven't considered going global, there's so many good reasons. And we can certainly talk about that today. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point that you you brought up. Like, I think of it as as just another revenue stream, but it's there's stability, right? Like, you, you're offsetting the risk in any particular market, and you know, gosh, especially during the volatile times that we've had over the last few years, to just sort of be in different places, and I think that's a really good point. Yes, it it certainly is, and so many people are afraid of doing it. And the federal government has so many free supports for companies that want to go international because our balance of trade is off. So there's free federal government supports. There's free state supports. You can even get grants to help you do translation or go on trade missions or trade shows or help update your website. You know, so there's so many opportunities to go. And I was kind of blown away. I was interviewing somebody on my podcast, and he was talking about all the resources that are available. And I even learned about some. And I'm like, okay, where do you start? And he said, you always go to your state representative because they can point you to the different people that can help you get financing, figure out the logistics, you know, point us to people like my company where we handle the global communications or the translation or the, the you know, international marketing. And so we've got lists of that on our website if anybody wants to know. But you can just Google your state, you know, Massachusetts state export support. And uh, that's how you can can tag into to any of these fantastic supports the government provides. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. I don't know if there's anything you'd, you would add to that. I just imagine that a lot of companies that have traditionally done a majority or maybe all of their business domestically or even regionally, you know, the idea of, of just of doing business internationally is probably just really overwhelming. It's like, you know where you know, their their business has probably come largely through referrals and you know repeat business with customers and you know some are maybe good at prospecting but pro- you know probably not a lot of that has happened internationally so i was going to ask you where do you start what are the resources that are available to you you've mentioned a few any like where would you point somebody if they're just sort of thinking okay maybe we should be exploring and doing business internationally yeah that's a loaded question there's so many different ways <laughs> Yeah, take it wherever, take it wherever you like, and talk as long as you'd like about it. <laughs> okay, so say you're a manufacturer and you're, you know, in the C level, and you're going, okay, where are we going to get growth this year? Well, first off, you know, reach out to your state representative because they're going to be able to point you to people that can help you develop a strategy. Okay. The second is think about what company countries might make sense for you. And I have heard of all different kinds of stories. I've heard of manufacturers going to Canada and Mexico just because we're close. You know, the the particularly the people on the borders there tend to go over. I've heard of people that have had international experience and want to go to certain countries, or people who are here in the United States that have family back in Greece or Italy or France or wherever, and so they feel like they have connections or they want to have a reason to travel there. I've heard of other people saying, "Well." I want a vacation home in this country. Therefore, I'm going to start doing business there. And then I've heard of people that are really astute online marketers, and they look at where the business is coming in from. So we worked with a client that he ended up getting a grant to pay for his translation. That's how he connected up with us. He happened to notice that he was getting a lot of visitors coming in. He manufactures like air purifier things. 
you know, technical term, <laughs> but it's, it's very specific for certain industries. And he noticed all this interest coming in from Germany. So he did some German translation on his website to help the buyers come through their buying journey in their language. And I can talk about the statistics for that in a minute. So there's all different reasons and places that you might pick to go. But I always suggest starting with a strategy, okay? Looking at what is it you're trying to accomplish? Make them smart, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and timely. And instead of vision for why you're going global, okay, going global is not a, a one-time act. It's making a commitment to, to a place that you're going to start doing business in. Okay, once you figure out that strategy, and I say start with one country, okay, because the next thing that you're going to look at is the process. What's the process you're going to set up for all the different areas that you need? So we particularly help people with their global communications, you know, any translation interpreting that they need to do. And you can bring a buyer through the whole sales cycle almost through the website for some things. Once you get that process set up, then you can pick another country and you can replicate that process for the country. So that's where you'd slowly build it out. The third area that you want to look at is technology. What kind of needs are there? You know, in particularly with global marketing, what we're looking at is what's your website built in? What are you using for SEO? Are you doing any pay-per-click? You know, are you using the Google Translate plugin, which I'll talk about next? Are you going to use translation memory, which is a good thing because once you translate something, you can reuse it. So, you know, if you've got copy that you use for your website, you can use it on your brochure, you can use it on your proposals. So once you figure out, you know, your positioning and what you're in your messaging, you can reuse that. So reuse the translation. And then the final thing that we say for thinking about, particularly in global marketing, is quality. Okay, there are some things that have to have high quality translation. So for example, if you're doing your website, if you're doing anything marketing, anything that can affect your bottom line, you have to have high quality. Whereas, you know, if you get an unsolicited email and you don't know what it's about, take that, pop it into Google Translate and see what it says. If it's nothing important or having to do with your business, it's just a random email, you've got the gist of it. So you can throw it out. But if it's an important communication, then you can figure out how you're going to communicate back. And there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, you can develop a chatbot, which is once you think it through for the English, it's really easy to transition it over to another language because you've already drafted it out. You know what the decision matrix is and you know what the messaging is through it. So all you have to do is translate. It's a small project and then you've helped solve something. So that, you know, start with a strategy, develop a process, think about the technology, and then look at the quality needs. And that, you know, that's in your, your, so you start with your, your, your company wide strategy. And then it has to, your marketing strategy has to align with that. And then your global marketing strategy has to align with that. Process is going to go through, you know, corporate down into all the different areas and then, um, you know, technology and, and quality. So here's a question for you. Let's just say you, you know, you, you chose a market. Let's, we'll say Germany, right? The, because of maybe for a reason like the one you mentioned, you're, you're getting a lot of traffic there for whatever reason. There seems to be some demand there. 
and you say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna focus the marketing in Germany because we we think we can grow there. And you know, sure enough, you get you you know you start to there is demand there. You start generating more interest. What do you do on the sales front? Like when you know all of a sudden you have to have a human conversation with somebody. You know, you, you and I are marketing people, but I'm curious to hear what what, what do you you need German speaking people in in house now or like wh- where do you go from there? Oh, excellent question. So we had a client. I'm going to give a couple examples. So one of them is, is we had a client. He said, I'm getting requests from China. He said, I'm getting emails. You know, can you translate emails so I can get back to these people? And so our minimum charge is $95. It's it's low in the industry, but you know, we've kept it at that. Actually, it's 125 or 150 for Chinese, but 95 for European languages. So I said, you know, if you're translating emails, you're going to have a minimum charge every time you have to communicate back and forth. There's a great book, and I love your books lined up behind you. I can see uh, visually we implemented traction. Another one I don't see up there is Marcus Sheridan's They Ask, You Answer. Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of my favorites. If it's, if it's not there, it's over there. So okay. <laughs> one, of my, one of my all-time favorites for sure. Yep. Yeah. And so his book is really good is that when people come to your website, they're looking for answers to five questions. And if you can answer those five questions, you can bring them a long way through the buyer's journey. So I talked to to the client and I said, okay, if you think about that, rather than doing emails that you're just going to keep, you know, racking up minimum charge, can you think about what the questions they're asking, put them into, you know, a format that you could put on a landing page and here's this book. This is what people typically want to know. And he was like, oh, that's a great idea. I could do that. So when you're thinking about your buyer's journey, You've got to give them the information to bring them as far along the buyer's journey as you can. Some people can sell all the way through the journey, and then you can use translation. Okay. You also have to think about the after-sales service. So if you have a user manual or support, what kind of information there do you not want to forget? Because that's all part of the customer experience that helps you grow. Okay. Some people have something that you would have to, a product that you would have to have a conversation about. And there's different ways to do this. One is telephone interpreting. It's really easy. You, you pay per minute. There's no monthly charges. There's no sign-up charges. You just call a number, you get an operator, you say, I need a German interpreter on the line. Within 20 seconds, you've got somebody to help facilitate the call. Then you can have the conversation back and forth for what you need. Okay. Say you need a little bit more than that. You can go to a video interpreter where you'd call up, you'd say, I'm having a a sales discussion or a customer discussion this day, this time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can get an interpreter on the Zoom or video call with you to help facilitate the conversation. Now, in a lot of countries, you face-to-face meetings are really important. So you can hire a, a live interpreter that can come in and facilitate. And when we're assigning an interpreter to go out on a face-to-face, we're looking to make sure that they're fully bilingual in both languages. They have interpreter training and they're familiar with the subject matter. So they've got some sort of background in it. And then also we'll provide any advanced information because they want to be good. So they're going to read up on anything before they go into an assignment so they can be ready for it. And it's all confidential. 
all the interpreters know that everything that they interpret is is confidential. So throughout the whole process of communications, we're making sure of that. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe I'm just naive, just because I've done, I haven't done much international business myself, and when I have, it's been with you know people who could also speak English as a second language, which was just helpful. But it's great to hear that there are tools like this that are so readily available now. And geez, even the fact you could have somebody jump on a Zoom call with you, and then that way you can still see the see your your you know future customers' face and and their facial expressions, which I think is just so important. So the next best thing you can do when you can't be in a room with somebody physically, I think. So, And you brought up something really interesting, which is most people you've done international business with speak English. And a lot of people have this feeling that, oh, English is the global language. I don't need to translate. And there are all kinds of statistics that show this isn't true. Even if somebody's bilingual, 72% of the consumers are going to spend more time on websites that are in their native language. And about three quarters of them are more willing to buy if they have information in their own language. And this is, this is bilingual people. And over half of them will spend more money if they can buy in their own language. So even though you think somebody speaks English, you know, you're going to get more business by investing a little bit in translation. So oftentimes that's what I'm talking about is look at the ROI on your translation rather than looking at it as a cost because the benefit is huge. Yeah. I, I imagine that it's not just because it's easier for that person, but it also demonstrates that you as the, the, you know, the company selling the product or solution provider are actually committed to doing business with you know, people in that country or who speak that language, because you've actually taken the time to understand, you know, to, to make it easy for them. Like it would, it seems like it would be a natural confidence builder that, okay, this company understands how to work with people from wherever I'm from. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's what a website is. That's what a storefront is. That is what, you know, you want your employees to make everybody feel comfortable and welcoming when they come to your place. So you think about, you know, the words, the language, and also the visuals and the colors and the references. And that's, you know, what a human translator is going to help you with. We didn't talk about Google Translate too much. If you I was gonna go there. I was gonna go there next. I was gonna say, all right, Wendy, let's let's hear your riff about Google Translate. What's wrong with it? It seems fine to me. Fine if you hop into a taxi and you're trying to figure out how to say something, but don't use it for your business negotiations. I mean, just yesterday when I was interviewing Andy Corrales from Sido, who you know his his episode launches in January, and if you have any interest in doing global business and want to know about the resources, you got to look at the Global Marketing Show. It's everywhere. And look for the one with Andy Carellas, K-A-R-E-L-L-A-S. He's full of information, but he told a fun story, not so fun, but a story about people who were international. And somebody's like, oh, I don't need an interpreter. I got Google Translate. And so he puts it in. And he says something to the people, whichever country he was in, and it ended up being offensive and swear words, and the people walked off. And so if you've got a potential business associate that you're going to do something with and you offend them, that can take years to redevelop. So just be really, really careful and don't use it for any of your marketing stuff. If our translators get something in 
And it's been done in Google Translate. And somebody will think they're being smart. Oh, I'll just do it in Google Translate and ask for edit. Our translators will spit it back so quick and say, look, it's going to be easier for me to do a fresh translation than to edit this. So I got lists of words that don't have a translation and have something funny. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I just finished reading... And this is outside of my business world, but and this is a book from probably 25 years ago. I don't know if you, you ever read The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. It was like a, the name of that book, The Poisonwood Bible. Well, well, it, it was about a family that went to the Congo on a, on a mission and, and just in a very naive way and a sort of a religious mission. And and the father who was a preacher, he would he was trying to say, you know, Jesus is precious or something like this. And what it was in, and the, the word precious had the same meaning as poison wood, which is, you know, a plant that was like, you know, worse than poison ivy or whatever in, in this region. And so it was sort of a an, a metaphor for the entire book of of, you know, they thought they could go into this country and and change change the ways and and show them the light and and so I, it just kind of reminded me of that because it's you have to you you know it's not just about the word right it's about like the the everything that surrounds that culturally and and how people are going to receive it and they're going to they're going to speak differently here versus there so yeah yes she's an awesome writer. And I remember the book, but I don't think I've ever read it. So I just wrote it down. I'm going to have to go read it. Read it. It's a good one. If you're looking for a, a good... It's long, but it's it's a good one. So I like long ones. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. If it's, if it's good, if it's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, back, back on track here. I was kind of curious to hear a little bit about like let's say you've committed to, you know, I'll stay on the same example. You, you, you entered the German market or, so, or something like that, and you're starting to have a little success. Like, How do you then scale that you know in terms of process and strategy to start entering other markets like is there a an economies of scale in a sense like you're you're kind of starting over i imagine if you're going to go to germany and then you're going to go to china right it's like completely different language wise and and culture wise but is are there economies of scale once you've sort of figured out how to do international business with one place absolutely absolutely so you know let me I'm going to stick to global marketing because it's one area that I can really talk to. But before I go into that, let me talk about like generally entering a new market. So if you go into Germany, all of a sudden you're in the EU and you can do business of any of the country in any of the countries except for the UK now. So it expands a lot. Okay. So if you start out with your state representative, they're going to be able to help you with banking, inco terms, you know, whether you have to get a CE mark, you know, any legal considerations that you're going to have. And so you're kind of you're going to there's a actually there's a really good checklist that's put out by Soft Land Partners that goes through the different functional groups. I can get you um, a copy of that to put in the show notes if you'd like. And so that that's a preliminary place to start with that checklist. Okay. Now with global marketing, let me Break that down a little bit more. So if, you, if you've heard of the HubSpot flywheel, you've got attract, engage, and delight. And what I like about this is, you know, you have to think about material about how you're going to attract in the German, you know, you have this in English, whether you know it or not. Then you've got to engage them. How are they going through your sales process? How are you onboarding them? And then how are you delighting them as a customer? So if you take those three areas and take them out of the flywheel, but put them into a chart, underneath them, there's certain kinds of content that people are looking for 
in each of the stages. Okay, so now you can go back and you can say, what do we have in each of those three stages and what works? Then you take what works from that and you translate that. Okay, so you make sure you have content in each of the three areas. So once you've figured that out for Germany, then you've already done the work and set up a process of how to do it across the other countries. And that's the same thing for all the other functional areas that you'd have to think about. And a huge secret is the people that are in international trade are extremely well connected, know people and specialize in stuff. I mean, if you get to the point where you have to hire employees, I know companies that have, you know, they're, they're set up like a PEO, professional employer organization. So you hire them, but they're the employer of record. There's embassies that are there that can help you with stuff. There's the gold key, gold key program that can help take you over and make introductions. So there's all different, there's people that can help you find a, a distributor in country. So once you tap into this market and figure it out for one country, you've, you know, just keep a list of all the things that you had to think about it. And then you just go to the next country and you've got people that are in global trade that are going to introduce you into the other areas. So, and, uh, you know, ironically, I see people that have had early exposure to other languages and cultures are the ones that are less intimidated about getting into to global trade. Yet, the people that I've talked to that didn't have that experience, the, the resounding record I'm hearing is that as long as you stay curious, you can, you know, and not trying to force your way, but stay curious about people, you can be very successful. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it's, it's just an argument for just get started in, in my opinion, you know, like start somewhere. It's, it sounds overwhelming because you could do business in probably 200 different countries, but pick one where there's a reason to believe that you could be successful there, figure it out just one step at a time. Right. And then, and then you can learn from that and start to formulate, I don't know if recipe is the right word, but you know, you, there are some efficiencies I'm sure that you can, as you've described that you can then, you know, translate over to other countries. Yeah. And it's so funny that you say just start it because when I was talking to Andy Corellis of Saito, his message was just jump in, just jump in, find that first connection that can, can open the door and talk to you about it. You know, my, I, the book I wrote, the language of global marketing takes through from chapter one is what's the opportunity and how do you think about strategy and where are the resources? So that's a good step one or listening to Andy Corellis's podcast when it launches in January, or reach out to me. I'm happy to, you know, give introductions and, you know, I've got people all over the world I'm connected with that, that help people to get into global trade. Great. Well, Wendy, although, you know, we focus mostly on marketing from the sense, you know, in the sense of, of acquiring customers internationally and through, you know, different speaking different languages. One thing I wanted to ask you about, just because it's so relevant to this audience right now, I figure you may have some opinions about it is, you know, right now hiring people, great people, but even just people is such a challenge across the board. And especially in the manufacturing sector, and I, I just did a little Google search yesterday. Was I was prepping for this episode just to see? I'm like, what percentage of of the U.S. population? You're, you know, just right here, even is maybe Spanish speaking first. And the number I got was like 40 million. I think it was like 13 percent of the population, or something like that. Is Spanish is the first language, and that's obviously only growing. And so I think that's sort of a, a microcosm of this. But like, how do you take the things that you're trying to do? 
in terms of marketing into other countries that speak different languages and, and apply some of those same strategies to uh, attracting people right here at home? Oh my gosh, Joe, that is such an excellent question. I'm so glad you brought this topic up. The United States has the second largest Spanish-speaking population in a country in the whole world. Is that right? I would not have guessed that, honestly. Yes. Mexico is number one. The U.S. is number two. And then you talk about Spain and Bolivia and Ecuador and Nicaragua or any of those other countries. They're smaller. So you can start exporting or selling to a global market you know, or multilingual market, I should say, right here in the United States. The potential is huge. And I get such a kick out of watching the Olympics in particular because you know it's similar programming. And I'll flip between the English-speaking TV and Spanish TV and waiting for the commercials because then I watch them. They're the same companies. You've got fast food, you've got cars, you've got insurance, you've got home goods, you've got cleaning supplies. They're all the same products and they've just adapted their advertising to the market. The reason that we're seeing this more and more is most of the immigrants that come into the U.S. are legal. So most of the press is about the illegal immigrants. And you're going to have pockets down along the border where the statistics may be off. But in the U.S., most of them are legal immigrants. And years ago, when people immigrated into the United States... They wanted to merge into the society as quickly as possible, learn English, push their culture away. We called it the melting pot. Well, now people that are in immigration call it more of a mixed salad. People are coming in and they're saying, no, people want to keep their flavors and their textures and their colors. And it makes for a much more lively consumption, you know, for us. Think about all the the food, the Thai, the Chinese, the pizza. Well, I guess pizza. I don't know. That might be very American. (laughs) Italian food and um, Indian food and all the different foods that we get and words and languages and songs. And so people come in and they're keeping their language and culture. They're not pushing it away. And you can see it with Russian math, math school and Saturday Chinese school and the bilingual schools that are coming up, the international education. So if you look at what you're selling, And who could buy it? If you manufacture something for lawn care companies or painting companies or home services or anything like that, these are, you know, simple examples. I'm coming off the top of my head, you know, market in Spanish, market in Portuguese, depending on where you're located. And you can pick up a lot, even if you have a, you know, you're a restaurant supplier, have the restaurants hang a flag of the local community of immigrants or put a sign that says, welcome up in multiple languages. And they're going to see their, their business go up. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think, you know, just thinking that way is it's going to help you on, you know, even domestically on the, the customer acquisition front, as well as the, the hiring front, you know, it's hiring. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. The manufacturers that I know, there's so many of them that are struggling to hire. The ones that I know that are fully employed are the ones that have figured out how to attract non-English speakers, engage them, and then make them feel included so they're part of the company. And it's a huge advantage. We've got people here in the US that come in as refugees, and they were engineers and school teachers and very educated back in their home country. But because they can't speak English, they're they're limited to 
fast food or housekeeping. I mean, I know of doctors that are housekeepers, but the manufacturers can bring them in, give them a real job, offer opportunity for advancement, and then stay at full employment and be very productive. And there's specific ways to do this. Not, you know, you got a good engineer, they may not have language skills. And so, but if they've got the brain that they can do engineering, then they can work on the manufacturing floor and they can probably teach a lot of things. So there's so many little tricks of how to manage non-English speakers without making English mandatory. For sure. You know, I've, I've had so many people on this show address the, you know, the labor shortage and the challenges related to that from, you know, provide ideas from their perspectives. You know, how do you get more involved in the schools? How do you tap into you know, parts of the population, you know, women in general, like get more women into manufacturing. How do you tap into the African-American population that has, is very underrepresented in manufacturing? I think thinking about how do you tap into the Spanish speaking population is another great way to look at it. That maybe is just feels intimidating or, or companies just haven't thought about it, but I mean, geez, 13% of our population for Spanish speaking first, like that's, there's, there's probably, you know, not only business there, but, uh, you know, a lot of really great potential members of the workforce that just aren't really being, you know, recruited. Right. And then you think about where you're located because it's not just Spanish. I mean, Boston Centerless is a company in just North of Boston and they have focused on hiring non-English speakers and they say they've got some of their best workers. And so they hang a flag up of all the countries that are represented on the shop floor. And they, I don't know, between 12 and 20 flags and they speak different languages and they do certain things. So I wrote a whole case study up about them because I just thought it was such a good example. So I'll share a copy with that. It's on our um, website. We've got tons of information on there, but I'll share that one with the show notes. And then if you're in manufacturing and want to learn some of the best practices, you can grab that and read it. Awesome. Well, Wendy, really good conversation here. Is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? I think one thing, if you're interested about learning in languages and cultures, I'm all over social media and posting stuff as I come across them. So I was talking about all the Google Translate words that don't have a direct translation. I can talk about, I talk about the mistakes. So you can follow me, Wendy Pease, P-E-A-S-E on um, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, it's some on Instagram now. But LinkedIn is where I'm very active and you can always reach out to me and connect with me and I'm happy to answer any questions. But, you know, like Andy Carella says, just just jump in. <laughs> it's just another language. People still recognize the global smile and still want the same things. They want safety for their family. They want to have a productive lifestyle. They want to have a decent job. And around the world, people want to buy American goods. Got really good reputation. Yeah. That's a great point. Wendy, how about uh, your book, your podcast? Where can people learn more about that as, as well as Report International? Okay. So I love Linktree. Are you familiar with Linktree? Yes, actually. I, I think I think we have a page. I don't think we really made use of it very well, but you can, I would be happy to share that in the show notes or um, tell our listeners what you're even talking about maybe. <laughs> yeah. So Linktree is a place where you can put all your links to everything. So if you go to my link tree, it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E. And then you search for Wendy Pease. 
you'll find my link tree and you can find a couple free chapters of the book. You can find the link to Amazon to buy the book. You can find whichever social media platform you're more interested in. You can find a link to our website, which can go to your, our learning center where you can search for anything on global communications. So that's that's a good way to find everything. But if you get to my LinkedIn at Wendy Pease, you can also try trace back to everything there. Awesome. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. And our website is Rapport Translations, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, translations.com. Perfect. Well, Wendy, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I really enjoy it. You have some really good questions, Joe. And, and I hope any of, uh, any of the manufacturers or industrial marketing people that are listening, I, th- I, ho- I hope it opens your eyes to some new opportunities. I'm sure it will. I think you've got a great perspective on it and some deep experience and expertise. Great conversation. Love this today. Thank you very much. Well, I will let you go, Wendy. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.